Hello, and welcome to Relative Pitch. We appreciate you tuning into our podcast. Our mission is to give you young musicians' perspectives on hot topics in the music world. By sharing our thoughts and opinions, we hope to help with bringing positive change and diversification to the music world. Here are your hosts, Lauren Green, Anthony Morris, and Michael Brown. Hello, everyone. Happy New Year. It is 2021. We're so excited that we get to see you all in this beautiful new year. Um, Thank you so much for continuing this journey with us. It's been such a privilege to be able to do this and have you all along for the ride. And this is um, the new year for us. And so this is season one still, but episode 13, the music community's role in politics. So the way that we kind of came up with this episode is kind of in response to the things that have been happening um, this past week, actually, um, or actually uh, last week, technically. And so um, as most of you probably know, the attacks that happened on the Capitol in Washington, DC, that was kind of huge, kind of huge. That was huge um, in terms of terrorism in the new year. I mean, first week, and here we are. Uh, guys, what was what were your reactions to when this happened? People said new year, new me in a completely wrong way. They said new year and I'm gonna storm the Capitol. Cause I think even like new year, same me, right? Oh. <laughs> no, no, this one's a little bit more bold. Last time they just be Facebook warriors. Now they're like, I'm gonna just walk up and they walked up in the Capitol. They didn't fight walked so let's let's even talk about let's break this down to people who may not even know exactly what happened i'm sure you do but just perspective basically what happened was since the election happened the presidential election happened there have been some strife and thoughts that there was there was foul play in the election process now anyone who's done any research or read any article or gone to any uh, major accredited website and looked up Um, election fraud in the U.S., you know that it's basically non-existent. Now, there have been cases that have been found of people maybe um, little slip-ups that happen here and there, but there is no huge showing that it actually happens on a regular basis, okay? So I would believe that most people would view that as, okay, it's like any type of system where there may be a few flaws that happen, but overall, the integrity is still there. Um, For some reason, this past election, the integrity of our democratic election process was questioned um, because of a certain party, okay? And, you know, this is a show where we feel like we are open to be very um, open with our opinion, and we want you guys to also be open with your opinion of how you feel that things are viewed and things happen within the world. Um, But basically, this was this continuous attack on our democracy was, is what caused this. No one can deny that. Like, it was a buildup, a buildup, a buildup, and then finally a huge explosion that honestly, no one saw exactly this coming. I wasn't expecting this. I was, it was the day that I was, I was teaching twice. I was like, okay, we're gonna have some coffee. It's gonna be a normal day. And then um, I don't know if it was y'all who texted me was like, oh my gosh, do you see what's happening? They're attacking the Capitol. Okay, I don't watch the news. I don't watch the news, but that entire day, as soon as it happened, I had the news going on different platforms to going on my TV, my laptop, my iPad, my phone. I was checking Twitter all day. Like, what, what, I mean, when, when did you guys realize that this was happening? Because I think even Anthony put it in the group chat, like, oh my gosh, you see what's happening? 
Yeah. Um, so I was already up um, because I knew that that day was going to be the day that they officially, um, you know, vote in uh, President-elect Joe Biden as our president. Because you know they have you have to go through electoral college, you have to do all that. So I was already up. Um, watching that, you know, how that's going to go. And it actually started out a little bit tense anyway, because people are already coming, we're coming in there like, we're going to stop this vote, we're going to do everything else. And then next thing I know, because I, for me, anybody who knows me, I'm a big person on Twitter, like I love Twitter. And I remember refreshing my Twitter and seeing like, people are storming the Capitol. And I'm like, wait, what is happening? Like, what is going on? And I'm just continue, like I, my, that day, my thumbs were so sore because of how much I was just going through it. And I started seeing these people literally walking up to the Capitol, like nothing, like there was no police that it looked like they were welcome guests, but welcome guests that have, uh, guns and torches and all of these weapons to go into the Capitol. And then I remember seeing um, this one report where it was like, the Capitol is now on lockdown. Every senator, every representative, they have been placed in their like bunker basically. And that really enraged me. It and this is why it enraged me is because not even a year ago from, from last week, there were Black Lives Matter protests. There were peaceful protests, by the way, peacefully. And the thing is, we we marched peacefully, but we got matched with terror. We got drugged through the streets. We got um, uh, tased. We got uh, pepper sprayed. We got rubber bullets. And we were just marching throughout the streets. Never attack on the U.S. government, the building that has not been attacked since 1812. 1812. But here you go. You have this group of people who is literally attacking the U.S. government, the government building. Think about it. When 9-11 happened and they went into the, uh, the towers, then the Pentagon, did you see the reaction that the world had to that? Here is domestic terrorism going on our soil to another U.S. building. What is the reaction to that? So this right now, this is January 10th that we're filming this. There are people that are at home right now who is like, oh yeah, I was there. I was there. And what, what's going to happen next? That enrages me because they literally, there's videos where the police is letting them in, letting them in. And then back to the Black Lives Matter, we're just marching down the streets. Like it, I want everyone to go back to Atlanta, the Atlanta protest. There were tanks. There were the whole guard, the National Guard, everybody there to, to basically stop that protest. But here you go. With none of that, the the one thing that all, that that day really made me mad is that the National Guard was not dispatched to that place to two and a half hours after the initial walking in, and there were reports that it, it had been declined multiple times before it got a yes. 
that really upsets me. And then people were saying, oh, you know, um, the police, they were overwhelmed, da, 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 da. You, everyone have known about this since election day, that that day when they were going to certify the results, there was already a plan of action for that to happen and nobody took it seriously. But when we say we're gonna have a Black Lives Matter peaceful protest, why come everything, it looks like the whole military is there to stop that? Armed. That's me. It's disgusting. Like I, I am, I think I was very mad and I put in the group chat, I said, y'all look what's going on. Look what's going because and everyone was making this making this correlation. If those were black people storming the U.S. Capitol, let me just tell you right now, none of those black people would have made it on the steps of that Capitol. No, no one, no one, besides the people who did, would have made it past the steps. They no. would have hit that first step if they thought they were rushing the Capitol. Pow, pow, pow. Oh. Immediately, like Actually, easy. You know, they wouldn't even made it anywhere in Washington D.C. at all, at all. Like they Washington, Washington D.C. is one of the highly, like most protected. Like all of the government buildings, like to go into the 9/11 memorial, it is like going through like JFK. Yes, legit. I mean, I've been Washington. And I remember the, um, the, all the things that we had to go through. Mind you, I was a fifth grader. Like, I'm like 10 years old. And I remember going through all of these guards. I mean, we walked. It was the um, Thomas Jefferson Memorial. And I remember they had guards stacked. I remember we were outside the, the White House. There were guards everywhere. We actually took a picture at the Capitol and like we were getting stared at by 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 the guards, by Capitol Police. A 10-year-old taking a picture on their fifth grade trip. So you where where is that pressure when it came to this? And that right there, I think that day made all of us very upset. Is because those police officers that were there seemed like they were just part of that. They were part of that movement anyway. So that's why they got to walk in. And also some, those people who got up in there, first of all, I don't know if y'all saw, they feces wiped across the US Capitol building, people sitting in the vice president's chair in the chambers, uh, the old older white man that was sitting in uh, Speaker Pelosi's office in her emails, and taking her mail, that's a federal offense. I mean, you've already had enough federal offenses, but taking, I don't know if y'all know, taking people's mail is a federal offense. I, he, I would like to see him in prison because that's what he belongs. Yeah, the craziest thing to me about all this was the fact that there were so many people who still defended this. Like I, I, I was looking at this and I was like, there's no, no way anyone would be able to spin this in any way to say that these people aren't doing, is this, they're terrorists, right? And then I go on, I'm like, okay, let me see how they're trying to. And many people were saying they weren't really, def it, this is the thing, they were deflecting. 
they were basically saying all you people uh, saying that this um, that uh, comparing this to the um, BLM riots that happened over the summer, these are actually peaceful protesters, right? First off, that is a lie um, because they broke in, breaking windows, uh, breaking fences to get over, climbing over walls to get over. Um, they attacked, they killed a Capitol Police officer, by the way. So they had no way was this ever peaceful. Um, a woman died because of their so trying to get more into it. A woman died. She knew what she was doing though. Like we are all adults. So if you know that you're getting yourself to a situation where you can get hurt, there you go, you know? And all the other people who got trampled and all these other things, um, it, it's crazy. I'm like, how, how is that peaceful? How in any way is that peaceful? Because we we actually organized and participated in a um, BLM march over the summer and it was completely peaceful. Anytime, and the thing about it, people tried to come up to us and rile us up, all right? People purposely tried to say things to our group to make us react in a way that we would maybe be hurt by police because of it. The police, and I will have to say shout out to the Kennesaw Police Department because they, the ones who were out there with us that day, were there for us. Anytime we walked across the street, they, were, they put their cars in there and they told people to wait. Um, whenever there were people trying to agitate us, they pushed them away and said, you need to leave them alone. Um, they let us do anything that we were, that was considered peaceful and everything that we did was peaceful. And the thing about it, there were so many other marches um, that happened and protests that happened that were exactly like that. And, there, and listen, there are bad eggs everywhere on every side. There are gonna be people who wanna do things that we're like, whoa, no, and that was one of the major things for us is we made sure we're like, we're not gonna vandalize. We're not gonna hurt anyone. We're not gonna agitate anyone. We're doing this for a cause, right? And so, yeah, there were some crazy things that happened at these things, but there have also been things that have proven that some of those people who started those lootings and writing out like vandalism weren't even pe people who were there for the reason, okay? And so it's just, it's so much that goes into it and the fact that they wanted to easily discredit the entire movement of BLM because of a few bad eggs. But then for this, when this happened, it was no, it's because their election, uh, it was stolen. They feel like their election was stolen from them. So does it say that if you feel that was stolen from you, you can go uh, kill people, you can go uh, vandalize federal buildings. It's just the, the, it's the hypocrisy for me. It really is. Like I remember I was talking to somebody and I was like, so, and they're like, you know, there's always bad eggs. And I was like, I didn't hear you say this over the summer, but okay. Like for me, like I have like, I've grown up in a military family. I, I grew up to respect the pledge, the constitution, all this other stuff. Like for me, I respect like the country we live in is supposed to, supposed to be free supposed to be this melting pot of everything and the older you grow up the more you realize it's not and the more you realize it's like people have to fight 10 times harder than like me i have it almost made in this country to be completely honest and i see the privilege in that and i see that my friends aka the people on the podcast with me don't have it as easy don't don't see stuff that I see. I'm like, oh, I can just drive at night. And I got pulled over because my brake light got out. But I don't have to be scared that my, my life is going to be taken. Or I'm going to have extra pressure on me 
But like for me, when I say like people say I'm an American, all this other stuff. But if you can say you're an American and you see your capital bull rushed like it's a flag football playground backyard football game, you cannot be proud or defend. You have to be sad. You have to be demoralized. You have to be like, what in the hell is going on in the country that was once one of the greatest countries in the world? People still say it. It's not. We are one of the worst in literacy. We're one of the worst in infant mortality. Like, we are not the superpower we once was, like, by any means. And it just sucks that people still defend this country to what it is when it really needs a lot of work. And we just don't, like, if we all just admitted it needed work, life would be better. But when we try to cover up a problems, S-Z, that is when it just gets worse. Like, when you have an old rusted car that's beat up and you just don't want to see that it's rusting, take that thing in some snow, you ain't going to have no, no more car. Like, it's very easy. And it's the, the hypocrisy of everything. Like, for me, like, I, my friends that I knew who were at the Atlanta um, protest or at uh, other protests being met with, like, tanks and armed cops and all this other stuff, I just, like, think of the civil rights textbooks that we have and see the pictures, like, there. I'm like, that was... what. What what years were those? Um, Between the fifties and sixties. Exactly, and why is that still happening? Why are they still met with that in twenty twenty? Because we haven't we haven't solved those issues from then. Obviously, they put a band aid over them. They put a band aid over them, but band aids don't heal. I don't even say a band aid. I just say a piece of tape, Uh, one of those loose, wet pieces of tape, like the. It got put on the back burner for some years and now it's back and it's just like, um, I was talking with a colleague of mine at my school and she was saying how she was watching um, the show A Different World um, from the 90s and it was after the Rodney King riot. And, um, you know, the students were having a conversation about there needs to be a change, there needs to be conversations, there needs to be this. And she was like, that's literally what we're saying right now. This show came out in 1988, 1980, uh, the riots of 1992. So like that time, and the, it's almost 30 years later and we're still saying these same things. Like that, that, nothing has changed. It has got put on the back burner, sure. And we've done other stuff, sure. But nothing has changed when it comes to stuff like this at all. Um, and especially when I hear people talk about a few bad seeds. That was a lot of few bad seeds, if you ask me. Like, I don't know if people saw how much, how many people were there. That's a lot of few bad seeds. And it wasn't like, oh, uh, just one group of them, the rest of the protest was peace. No. Every single person that was there bombarded the U.S. Capitol. That's not a few bad seeds. And then the other rhetoric that I hear is the blue lab, blue lives matter. Well, that changed very quickly. Uh, the little the little uh, resistance that I did see from the Capitol Police, I remember seeing some of the protesters, rioters, thugs, as that's what they are, 
um, I saw them like, how could you do this to us? We're, we're, we're supposed to be on the same side. Like very just what in the world is going on that the police is against us? That Blue Lives Matter went out the way. They killed a police officer. They bombarded the police officer. So where's that Blue Lives Matter? Blue Lives only matter when Black Lives was in question. I said something about that too. And I was just like the, the just looking at these people holding Blue Lives Matter flags while literally fighting the police just says everything about how the movement itself meant nothing more to them besides undermining the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I said it on Facebook, I'll say it again. It's just, it just shows what their true intentions were behind what they did and what they have been doing since past spring or past summer and everything. And so here we are, three young musicians in the world. And, you know, every time something like this happens, I feel like everyone has to stop and think, what can I do to help this? What, what can my community do? What can I do in my community? What, like, to help this not happen to help the country because this was a country that was built on the idea of like religious freedom and getting away from prosecution for those things now the question you can also question who that freedom was for but that's another topic um yeah, anyway because uh, that is the thing and uh, one thing about that capitol building you do not capitol building was built by enslaved black people so here Somebody also said, how could they do it? Number one, my belt, this country was, was supposed to be built for free people. But like you said, who are those free people that you are speaking about? Yeah, uh, and that's, I mean, that's America's history, right? It's all about freedom, but for certain people. Because um, African-American people, Black people were not thought to be people mm. of whatever America was I'll do this sound. Um, anyway, so now we're at this point where we are a few days from this incident. We are about to be a few days from the new inauguration of our president-elect, and we're worried. Um, we're worried that like something else like this is going to happen, um, and that this is something that can continue to happen because these people feel like they have been empowered to do things like this. Like they, it is their right as an American to defend their democracy with whatever sense it makes sense in their head, that's how they feel. Um, this isn't, you know, this is not the first time something crazy politically has happened in America or in the world even. And so let's like take a look back to things in the, of the past that have happened and how the music community has responded to it. And I'll, the first instance I'll talk about is Messian's um, Oliver Messian's Quartet for the End of Time. Now this is a piece that like quartet that was written for violin, cello, clarinet, and piano. You might be thinking to yourself, that's a very weird combination. Yes, it absolutely is. The atmosphere that this piece was written under was when Messian actually was captured um, in like imprisoned by the German army in, uh, yeah, army in World War II. Okay, so he was imprisoned. The only instrumentalist he could find within that camp was himself. He did piano, violin, a cello, and a clarinet, all right? So he composed this piece in like, basically in resistance to what was going on in the time. And the preface was inspired by the book of Revelation. Because during this time, a lot of people were like, this is the end. 
of the world. This is the worst it could ever get possibly. And so this, this was his response to what was going on in the world. And this was so powerful because in those instances, it can feel so like we don't, it's the end of the world. Why would I want to do anything to besides die, right? And he used his art, he used his talent to make something that inspired the people who were imprisoned in that camp. And something that is used now, if you go listen to this piece also, I've listened, it's haunting. It is beautifully done. Um, the orchestration, he, I mean, it's so weird. I mean, it's so quirky in a lot of ways, but I think it kind of works for what it is. Um, but this was one of the instances during that period that um, we saw of the music community's response to what was currently happening in politics. Um, and I know Michael and Anthony both had other instances as well, um, examples of where the music community responded to political situations. Um, I know one around the same time, Joseph Stalin. We all know Stalin. He was one of the dictators that was killing millions of Russian citizens, purging them, he called them. And one of the greatest composers, uh, Shostakovich, was in Russia with his family, composing politically driven music, waiting outside on his doorstep every night, chain smoking cigarettes, just in case the secret police was going to come and grab him. He didn't care if they were going to come and grab him. He wanted to say his beliefs, write his music, but he didn't want them to disturb his family. Like when I was told this, when I was preparing an excerpt from his piano and trumpet concerto number one, which by the way, if you haven't listened to it, amazing. And there's a excerpt for trumpet that's low, very lamenting. Um, and you can just, if you can feel all the agony, all the pain that Shostakovich was going through under the reign of Stalin. Like if you're one of the country's greatest composers at the time, and you're writing politically driven music against the dictator of that country, wouldn't you be scared throughout the day, throughout the night, that you were just going to be coming taken by the secret police just because you were going against something? Like, we now have a chance to go against something and don't immediately get our heads chopped off. So, like, but he's just chain-smoking these cigarettes on his front step. Like, they're going to come and get me, but I just don't want you to mess with my family. Leave my family alone. You can have me. But I'm still going to say what I got to say. Yeah. And so going off of Michael, um, getting into more specific, another piece um, that he got into a lot of uh, no-no trouble with was his Leningrad Symphony. And I believe we either played a clip of this or we, uh, or we um, discussed it maybe both already. Um, in Alex Ross's book, The Rest is Noise, um, there is so much information about Stalin and Shostakovich's relationship. But truly, it was the reason why I even got more into Shostakovich knowing about the history of his music and the circumstances in which they were written under. Um, but Leningrad Symphony, honestly, it was, it's one of my favorite pieces ever. One thing, just go listen to it. Number seven, Shostakovich, Leningrad, beautiful piece but it was used as a symbol of resistance to fascism and totalitarianism. And in movement one, actually the theme is, was called the Stalin theme by uh, Shostakovich's close friends, right? And if you go listen to it, it's like this theme was like, da, 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 dum, dum. And it's, it's very like, 
marchy and very like i'm coming to kill you-esque okay and then later on it was actually adopted into like called the anti-hitler theme okay so you you can you know what this is about this is music of resistance it's music to say we're not okay with what's going on this was immediately banned by the way like they they heard it and they were like absolutely not you know and thankfully it got over i believe to the u.s um before uh, you know before i believe it, it could be destroyed and there's a lot of even shostakovich music still to this day that is censored and you can't even find it in print and all this crazy stuff because that's how scared stalin was of the impact of his of shostakovich's music um because that is music and art in general touches us personally that is why Hitler used Wagner's music because Wagner had a talent for speaking right here or right into your heart, you know? And so music has always been a force, like a strong force within politics. And there, there are like numerous, numerous, numerous examples. And Anthony even has more about this. Yeah, um, before I even do that, I, I think, something has changed in music a little bit from then to now, where now a lot of people are using this rhetoric of music, we don't want music to be political. There is no way in the world music cannot be political because music has always been something that uh, correlate with, correlates with what is going on in the world. Therefore, that whole that whole statement is out of out of line, out of line because it is always reacting to what is going on. So the two pieces that um, y'all referred to, they were a direct response to what was going on at that time. So we now in our good old twenty first century world, where you know things are kind of going easy they're like oh we just want it to be beautiful da, da, da. no that's not it that's really not it and i that whole thing of music is not political needs to just go away and also political is something socially social justice anything justice really is no longer political in the first place we are not political is when you're talking about do we want a blue president a red president green what that's politics when we're talking about do we want to see uh, uh, justice for people who are getting slain, who are dying in these streets, that is not political. That is justice, okay? That is what we're talking about. And some of the pieces that um, I really uh, have taken, you know, a part of or, or just love listening to um, is a lot of the newer music who, who has been a response especially with the past, honestly, 10 years of things going on. One of them is uh, Omar Thomas's um, Of Our New Day Has Begun, which is a direct response to the Mother Emanuel AME Church shooting in Charleston, South Carolina, where um, another domestic terrorist walked into a church and actually killed a lot of um, Black people that was just going to church just going, trying to go to church, went in there and killed um, so many people there. Um, I think that was 2015. And that also was a very outraging thing because again, the police, when taking this young man, 
the terrorist to jail, asked him, what do you want to eat? Stop, I think it was like at a McDonald's, got him a McDonald's sandwich before taking him to jail. That is disgusting. You treated this person that literally just killed, I think it was uh, like, like 15 or so people in a church, went in and killed these people, both old uh, elders, both young, all of these people. And you're asking this person, what do they want to eat? Disgusting. Another piece that was a response to this uh, Mother Emanuel uh, shooting was also James Stevenson um, entitled, There Are No Words, which I remember hearing this for the first time and because uh, KSU actually performed it. And hearing that, uh, uh, I think uh, there's this part in the flute where I think it's a low F, mind you, flute players, low F, like it's lower in the register. And just like what Michael was saying about uh, the, the trumpet concerto, where it was very low. And whenever an instrument is sitting lower in their register, it sounds very haunting, like it's something you remember. And I think, Lauren, I don't know if you remember, but I think there was like eight or so Fs. And it, I think it was representing the eight lost souls from that that um, from that from shooting. And I just remember hearing it. And it's, it's literally just flute. And it's, you hear eight, you hear just eight, uh, just bum, bum. And you're just like, going on and it, I remember sitting in the audience like it brings you in and it's very haunting and that is one thing that I, I will always remember about that piece is because of that um and I and I'm pretty sure y'all because Lauren you performed this piece and how it felt to perform that piece uh when you know we were honored to have James Stevenson actually with us for the rehearsals of this and for the performance of this and I remember first when we you know got the piece and um, we were reading over it a little bit and uh, Dr. Keeler explaining it to us and then also James Stevenson coming in and explaining it to us and like pointing out all the things in it. Like, yeah, Anthony was saying the low um, ostinatos that were happening to represent the deaths. And also there was the thing that I think got me was there is a part where you could hear the names of the victims in it. He has it written out and I remember the first rehearsal we had of this, we all cried. I mean, I mean, I remember like I was sitting next to Corinne, which is one of our, the former flute players at KSU. And I just remember crying, she was crying. We just heard sniffling across the, the ensemble. I believe even Dr. Keeler was wiping a few tears away. Um, and then when we did the actual performance of this and, you know, cause I believe James Stevenson, he spoke about it, of course, at the uh, concert so that the audience had a perspective of the piece and after it was such an emotional thing to perform and the audiences because I believe and Anthony correct me if I'm wrong because you were in the audience I believe both of you were in the audience for this actually it was almost like a moment of silence that we were all just reflecting on what we had just listened to and what it represented and then finally came the applause of the actual performance but it was such a it was such an amazing experience but also so saddening to the fact that we even are playing a piece because of the situation that happened. Um, and it, it just shows you how, the, like I said before, the power that art and specifically music has 
in circumstances like this. I know that piece moved me. A lot of pieces have moved me. Like music for Prague is another one that's just like the story behind it. And my point going forward, um, we have to openly talk about why pieces were written, what happened, what inspired them, why was it inspiring, why was this the history, the true, complete, factual history of everything. Like, the longer we suppress history, the more it will repeat itself. And that is like a true fact of everything. Like, if you don't, if students don't understand and they're learning about Leningrad or Shostakovich 5, Music for Prague, all the new works that Anthony has mentioned, and we will release more like recordings and stuff later of all the works that have been re recently written about recent events. If they don't know these pieces or know why they were written, then it will, it is bound to repeat itself and bound for audiences to stop coming. Yeah. And that's something that Anthony is very passionate about. I'm gonna pass off to him about this, why classical music, quote unquote, is on the decline in some areas. Um, I am very passionate about this because I think I fall in this category um, of why in classical music are we seeing our audience kind of decrease? And to me, I believe it's because we have now, um, it's not relatable. To us anymore. Um, as a, a millennial, uh, or I don't know if we're millennials or Gen Z, I don't know what we are. We're kind of like in the middle, but I do know for myself and people of my age, this music that we are playing is not relatable to us anymore. Um, and I know people that are way younger than us, it's definitely not relatable to them because they're like, what, what is this? What, what is going on? So, the thing is, when we do perform these pieces, such as, you know, Karel Husa's Music for Prague, or uh, Omar Thomas's Of Our New Day Begun, or James Stevenson, like, these are the pieces that bring audience there because they know what this means. They know, especially when, uh, like, a new person will come into uh, the audience, and especially, like, say, the conductor say a couple words just to get you into that mindset of this piece represents something like that. And uh, one piece that I think really kind of hits it on the nail is by Craig Heller Johnson and it's called Considering Matthew Shepard. So for you that don't know uh, Matthew Shepard, um, he was a gay student at the University of Wyoming, I believe, that was kidnapped, severely beaten, tied to a fence and left to die in a field under the stars in 1998. Um, I remember, I remember hearing this story when I was a young, because as a person of LGBTQ community, hearing this, I think I was probably 13 or so, hearing this for the first time and, and just like, scared. and I, and people are always, you know, uh, they warn you if you're part of the LGBTQ or Black person, or your family kind of lets you know, be careful. Like, I remember getting that, that story all the time from my parents of like, be careful, know your surroundings, know everything. So when I heard about this, that really kind of hit me, the Matthew Shepard story of just how could anybody do this? 
take a person who not, like literally not bothering you at all kidnapping them beating them and leaving them in a field to die disgusting but Craig Heller Johnson wrote a, a phenomenal piece called Considering Matthew Shepard, where it tied all of the, the sadness, the, the anguish, all of these feelings into a piece. Um, and I think I remember uh, many different choir groups uh, played this, and I remember seeing no one in the audience had a dry, dry, dry eye at all. Um, and even the family of Matthew Shepard co-signed on this um, piece as well. It is very sad. These are the songs that relate to um, the, the generation now, especially the kids right now who are in the LGBTQ community who are like, I don't know what's going, like I don't see another gay person or this and that. These are the pieces that relates to them. This is how we are going to, to really have our audience because now they're like, wow, I hear myself. I see myself in this. I wanna be a part of this. And I think, and as a conductor, it is our job to make sure our ensemble knows what is going on. Because I do know some ensembles who will say perform a spiritual and they don't know what the spiritual means. And then, of course, it's going to come off very um, not genuine whatsoever. And that is that actually does a worse service to that piece than anything else. Yeah, um, the, the thing about it is in music, we have the pieces like, oh, these just are really fun to play. And, you know, as a flute player and like as a so you know, a soloist, me and Michael, like that's the thing. We have our pieces that are just like the really fun, like concert openers or concert enders and things you would do on chamber recitals that, ooh, this is gonna get the audience moving and dancing. And there's a place in the world for all of these aspects of music, okay? There's the, the, there are pieces like that that are more for the entertainment side. And then there are pieces like the ones we're discussing here today that are the things that really relate to the, our, our humane side, our morals, and that, connect, that are really the pieces that actually connect us, right? And so what, what we're saying is that there, whenever we're teaching these students these pieces, when we're uh, programming concert seasons for symphonies, we have to have a good balance of both and also show our audience the, like, why we're playing these pieces. Because while you know Shostakovich is dead, hearing about the music that he wrote and why he wrote it can relate to things going on currently now, right? And then you have other pieces like that may be like more Baroquean era that really don't, but at the same time, they do have a place within our, you know, within our um, current uh, timeline, but it doesn't, that doesn't have to be all that we play. What we're getting, what we're striving to get is a more balanced recital, concert, uh, concert uh, symphony concert, and just a way more about like what is in the current rotation needs to be updated and refreshed, I believe, you know what I mean? And so, you know, there are our war horses, we've used that term a lot within this, that we feel like we almost have to play within ensembles. Do we though, you know, it's like now we're questioning the, like, what we, is it just because we've done it before that we want to continue? Or are we ready to step up and move forward and start a new, start something new that like they're saying is more relatable 
to our current generations. Because most students who are out there in those band programs um, or orchestra programs, choral programs, may not know exactly what exactly, like, just like Anthony just said, exactly what they're singing or playing. They could just have learned the music. Think about if the teacher actually took five to 10 minutes on the first day of them opening that first new piece and explaining why it was written and the effect that it has had on the world. And imagine like that's a lesson you are teaching them. That is something that is gonna be so ingrained in their brain and it's gonna affect the person that they are. People don't realize, I, I still remember certain music lessons and, um, and classes that I still remember to this day. And it affects me as a musician and as a human being as well. Yes, uh, definitely. Like, I, I, I will never forget some of the times I've done spirituals and literally just learning, uh, feeling those spirituals and uh, kind of connecting with them. Like for me, spirituals have always been something I connected to from when I first started in choir, when I was a sixth grader, doing a spiritual, because to me, it just felt like this is something home. This is something that feels closer to me than say, if I was doing a, a Mozart, whatever, like spirituals have always felt that way. And the thing is in choir, in the choir world, spirituals are looked at, oh, it's a showstopper. That's all it is. No, spirituals have meaning they have a story behind them that needs to be spoken about okay you cannot just give a spiritual lot and say oh this is just our showstopper i hope you know the definition of a spiritual and a spiritual goes into the whole plantation song work songs all of these things that are what that are the subcategories of spirituals that you need to talk about because the kids will not understand what's going on until you let them know that and there's a big difference in just putting these meanings and program notes and actually speaking about it in yeah. concerts. Cause I know I'm a weird person. I read the whole program book. Yeah. I read all the yeah. bios. I like memorizing all the bios. And when I see them I'm like, oh, they went here, blah, 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 blah. Not a lot of people like looking at that program notes. There's sometimes I just throw that thing on the side. Like after the concert, I just throw it away or give it back to be reused if you're at a symphony. But if a conductor or student, you can get your students to do this at concerts. Yes. They speak about the piece. The audiences are automatically more invested because someone is speaking to you. When someone speaks to you, because mm -hmm. there's an actual inflection up and down of our voice, you're going to be more invested. And then when you listen to it, you can correlate and connect, yes. which will bring people back to music because something instrumentalists don't have, that vocalists have, that pop mo modern culture has is words. Pop modern culture, all these rap, hip hop, country, pick a genre. They are connecting to you with words, which is so much like easier. You can immediately connect. Vocalists, you have words. If you can understand the language, if they're in English, spirituals, words, connecting, church, words, connecting. Instrumentalists, we don't have this luxury that some, some of us think we do. We right. have to share the story and then share it through music which is easier once they understand what they're listening to. Right. Like if you don't understand what you're listening to in this like this nice, pretty lamenting lyrical piece, yeah, they'll be like, oh, it's kind of lamenting. But if they can connect a story to the music, they are more than willing to come back, support your organization, support you yourselves and support music in general. 
and that's the whole thing like music for me is written to be understood and written to share an emotion and musicians is just the vessel like yes we put a little bit of our own into everything that we play but we are a vessel for the composers to connect to audience to connect to the world mm-hmm. we're not here for our own self indulgence and we have to learn that and it takes all of undergrad maybe some masters maybe some doctoral maybe all of high school like it takes however long it takes you to understand that yeah but when you're playing a piece you add your own emotion and you're a vessel for the audience to understand accept and correlate to their own lives and what's happening to them you know some of those pieces that uh has a story that you probably, I think, conductors or whoever needs to let the audience know what's going on. So some of those pieces, uh, Adolphus uh, Hellstork, American Guernica. Um, on this video, we will definitely have a playlist of all the songs that we have talked about so you can go back and listen to them for yourself. But American Guernica is about the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963, where it killed four young Black girls. It was a, another terroristic bombing, uh, really at um, kind of the peak of the um, civil rights movement um, in Birmingham. And of course, people know Birmingham, Alabama is one of the biggest cities throughout the civil rights movement. And there was a group of people that placed the bomb under this church. Again, a black church and killed four young girls that was just attending Sunday school. How could you do this? That piece is a response to that. And when you hear it, the first thing you hear is anger. I remember when I first heard this piece, I was angry. It, It sounded very angry. And that was the whole point of it. And then it goes into this lamenting. It has like a piano um, solo at towards the ending of it. And you hear kind of this space where there's like, what, what, what just happened? What is going to happen? And it, it really, it really ties into that. Um, another piece is uh, Steve Daniels into the Silent Land, which is a response to uh, the Sandy Hook shooting. Again, a gunman coming into uh, elementary school and shooting uh, elementary school age children. How, how could you? What is going on? This is where the whole, we need some, some gun rights. We, we need to figure out this because there is no way in the world this needs to happen. Um, and the last uh, piece that I, I have on my list is John Adams on the transmigration of souls. It actually won a uh, Pulitzer Prize um, in 2002 because it was a response of 9-11. And when you take a listen to this piece, you hear literally the souls of all those people that were affected through 9-11 just kind of transcending, going somewhere. And it is definitely one of those things where you have to say something, you have to, um, teach and educate our listeners, the performers, and yourself what is going on. Um, because all of these pieces here, they have a meaning. And the purpose of that, that, that piece is to educate the next people that are listening to them.
Yeah, and so like in addition to into that, and you know, we're getting close to February. So for me, immediately February, I'm like, this is Black History Month, you know. And of course, like I am Black, 24 seven, 365 days a year. But this is the one month where you know the country, you know, we're supposed to celebrate Black heritage, right? So the song "Lift Every Voice and Sing" that is known to be the Black or Negro national anthem. And so this song, it was actually premiered. Um, at a celebration of Abraham Lincoln's like a birthday in February 12th, 1900, right? And it was performed by 500 school children um, at a school in actually Jacksonville, Florida, um, which I didn't, I didn't really even know the history of that at all. And then basically it was a poem that was then set to music by the school or the poem was written by the school principal. And then I believe it was his brother who actually put it to music. Um, and if you, you, I'm sure you would know this song. If, if you don't know the, it by name, you would know it when you listen to it. Um, but this song was actually written to speak out against racism and Jim Crow, because that is what was going on um, during these times, like this terrible times that, you know, we remember and it's always there. And we're always trying to make sure we don't get back to that. Okay. <laughs> you know, and it was kind of like what we were saying earlier about like, oh, it's, we're just kind of still talking about the same problems and yada, yada, yada. Well, yeah, because obviously we have not fixed them all, you know, and then the, so the NAACP adapted this as the Black National Anthem. And that is how we know it today, because that is something that you hear song. I remember going every MLK day, I would go to church and that was, I remember we would do the cross arm thing in church and like you would rock back and forth and everyone would sing it. And that was like one of the best parts of that service was knowing that that was going to happen. Cause that song just like invokes, it just moves me to like no degree. Like it's just, it's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, beautifully done the lyrics mean so much. And so, you know, all you educators who may be listening to this, if for black history month, you are, you're planning on using that piece or any piece um, by an African-American composer that has lyrics to it, or even if you're, you know, band and you're, you know, teaching your band kids a piece by an African-American composer and it has meaning, talk to them about it, tell them what it means and so that they can relate to it in some way, shape or form or be able to empathize with it. You know what I mean? Um, because all of these pieces, like we have been saying this entire time, truly do mean something and they also do something. And that goes to what we, you know, part of this episode is how can we as parts of the music community and the music community as a whole, how can we help out? How, what is our role within politics in the world right now, you know? And music has always been something that we have used to inspire hope. We've used it to bring people together, you know? And so, we have to figure out the ways in which we individually and as a community can use music and use arts in order to better our country politically and just in general. Um, and one of the last things, uh, two last things. First, uh, lift every voice. Um, back to the Omar Thomas's piece of Our New Day Has Begun. He uses, that is the last thing that you hear. It, it's kind of, uh, the motives are in it, it's interweaving and it's the whole song. But that last statement is legit, lift every voice and sing. And he intentionally put that, put that there because 
it is the Black National Anthem. And it ends that piece on such a high note, but also a note that you actually need to think about. And the last thing um, that I want to ask both of you um, is that for all of this time, we always say we need to have a conversation about this. We need to have a conversation. We've been trying to have this conversation about Black and white and all of these and how can we make it better? What happens after the conversation? Because every single time something, either Black Lives Matter protest or what happened on, on the other day with the Capitol, we're like, well, we just need to talk to each other. We need to have a conversation. What will happen after these conversations? What can we change to finally make something actually happen? What can we do? Well, first, the conversations need to be genuine. They need to be actual conversations at this dynamic, not louder, but this dynamic and just talking to each other. And it has to come from both places wanting to change. If both parties don't want to change, don't want to talk about what's actually happening, what is going on, nothing's going to change. And that's just with everything. If you have a conversation with somebody you have a problem with and you're not actually talking and actions don't reflect after, then it wasn't a conversation. It was talking to a wall. And first parties want to have it for it to happen. And then actions need to follow. That's yeah. where the conversation will start. Yeah, I agree. The First of all, you're absolutely true. It has to be a genuine conversation and it has to be a conversation. Most of the time you see, when you see those people online arguing, those aren't conversations, those are arguments. Um, so nothing that even resembles or reflects anything like that. A conversation between two people who are actually open or what, however many people who are open to hearing what the other party has to say. And I have been in those conversations and look, they're hard, okay? They're hard because someone could be saying something that in their mind makes complete sense, you know? And to you, you're like, how could you even think about that? But you have to remember, and this is something I've had to learn, perspective, okay? I have I've never not been an African-American woman. <laughs> I was born that, I will die that. Um, and so for me, I have seen the world through a lens that so many other people will never be able to see, okay? And same Anthony as an African-American man, um, has seen things that neither me and Michael will never see the perspective of, okay? And so for Michael being who he is, he has seen the world through our lens because he is our, he's our, our friend, right? And because our struggles, he sees it as his struggles. And like, it, it, it's such a, it's a thing that one thing, it's beautiful, friendships are amazing. And it also allows us to get different perspectives from other people, you know? And so that is the first step is, being open to one thing, thinking about a perspective other than your own, and also being open to genuine conversations. And also, okay, then it's like, all right, we have the conversation. How do we invoke change? How do we want to change? Well, first of all, you just saw change because, um, hello, the, these, these past elections, seeing how many states have flipped to a different side, seeing the type of the system that we have now implemented, um, wow. 
that's change right there for you, okay? <laughs> so let's, I mean, we have to get about that action is all I'm gonna say about that is that we can, you can, yes, go, go protest, go march, um, fundraise, all these things for these great causes, but the best way that you can invoke change is to go out and use your voice and vote. And I'm gonna close it on two things. First thing, if you ever want to look at a person and study a person who said, I'm going to make a change, is Stacey Abrams. Mm. Because she, she is the definition of this is how you make a change. Let me go on the front lines and let me start doing the work and bringing people along with me to do the work. That is a person who invokes change, who is a person, if you ever wanted somebody to look at of how can I make a change, she is the person to do it, okay? And uh, to end this whole thing, I found a quote uh, through, I think it was the Bannerator Facebook page um, of a Bernstein quote that said, this will be our reply to violence, to make music more intensely, more beautifully, more devoutly than ever before. Take that as something, as a response to what it is right now. And I'm thinking about the music that will be um, written out of these past two years of Black Lives Matter protests, women's marches, things that just happened, literally the election. I am excited for the music, the beautiful, intense music that we're going to hear because this is what I've been talking about this whole time. It is related, it's relatable to us, the people right now. And that is what we need in music. Um, I am so glad we're now in 2021. I hope everybody had a healthy um, and fun and fellowship time with their family, their friends over the break. And we are, as a relative pitch, all three of us, we are here 2021. We're gonna make our year even better and even bigger. So please continue to watch us on YouTube, listen to us on Spotify, on Apple, everything. Also go tell a friend, go yes, like, please. hey, listen, <laughs> listen to us, you know, and also, Come and be engaged in our conversations. Let us know what you're feeling, what you want to hear. Um, we'll love to have a conversation, a truly genuine conversation with you as well. So please, 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 uh, the links will be down below for everything. So please just follow us on all those. And I hope you have a great week. Bye, everybody. See you next time. See ya. Thank you for listening and being a part of our conversation. Remember to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear what you thought about today's episode, so leave us a comment or review. See you next time.